This is Deion Dawkins, man, and you're listening to The Scoop on OwlScoop.com. You already should know. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Scoop, OwlScoop.com's podcast, Season 7, Episode 25, the Jeremiah Williams episode. That's a good one. I'm John DeCarlo. Joined by Kyle Gauss, Sam Cohn, and Dante Colonelli. What's going on, guys? I'm just beyond thrilled. I think this, I'm going to be honest, I think this is one of our better episodes. I mean, every episode I think is fantastic, but this is this episode has some good stuff. So I'm excited. This is a good one. Yeah, this is jam-packed. Very exciting. So, yeah, some are calling it a jam-packed episode. Some. <laughs> some. Who are those? Who are those some? Summer, so I keep my ear. The close people, to the, streets. the people, John, the people are calling ear, it. Yes. Keep my ear very close to the streets on this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we got um, the, the highlight of this episode is going to be an excerpt from our interview with Temple football coach Stan Drayton. Uh, what you're going to be hearing here in a few minutes is the, uh, basically like the first part of our interview with Stan. Uh, he did talk about his two newest hires, Jafar Williams at wide receivers coach and then Marvin Klesador. Uh, at safeties coach. Uh, if you've been following along, Thad Ward was with Temple through signing day, and then he left uh, to take job at Kansas State. And then Ola Adams, who had been hired from Villanova, uh, left for a position with the Broncos. So uh, Stan was able to talk to us about his two most recent hires. Uh, and a lot of this is around his early life, growing up in Cleveland, what got him into coaching, and a great anecdote about how he met his wife and all the the the, I mean, that's, there's a plot twist there in terms of the story of how they got together, how he proposed to her, uh, and uh, and some rapid fire questions there about uh, his favorite song, favorite food, first concert, some fun stuff there. And then if you are an Alscoop.com subscriber, which we hope you are, and if you aren't, you should subscribe soon because uh, the bulk of our conversation is going to be on the site in the coming days for subscribers, and that includes stuff about. Um, a lot more detailed stuff about you know his coaching staff, uh, his philosophy on how much they're going to be hitting and tackling in practice, whether or not they're keeping the single-digit tradition, uh, all sorts of good stuff. So a, a really good conversation there. We will be talking uh, near the end of the pod uh, about some basketball. Just a, a programming note here. We are recording this on Wednesday before Temple hosts SMU for a, a 9 p.m. late tip-off at the Leocorus Center. So, uh, but we will talk a little bit of hoops. We got a few basketball mailbag questions for you at the end of the podcast. But um, what we're going to do is play the, the first part of this uh, Stan Drayton interview. Again, this is him talking about just his early life, some of his earliest football memories, what got him into coaching, and then we will react to this on the other side. All right, so we are thrilled to have with us on the scoop this week on the Al Scoop podcast, none other than Temple's new head football coach, Stan Drayton. Stan, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing phenomenal. How about you guys? Doing well, hanging in. Can't good, good, good. Um, Stan, before we get into some of the other questions, um, I know this is part of the process. You like it, this happens in college football. You have you hire new guys, and then sometimes things move around. And right. and Thad Ward moved along. Ola Adams moved along, and it kind of speaks to the the quality of coaches that they are. And then to replace them, you brought in two other assistant coaches and Jafar Williams and Marvin Klesador. And I was hoping you could talk to us about, about those guys and, and what the whole process is like when you're just piecing all this together in addition to a, a new recruiting class as well. 
Yeah, you know, that that whole process, I mean, it's tough in the very beginning. You try to go and get the best fit, you know, for Temple, for your athletes, for your philosophy, right? And mm-hmm. and here they have to have some type of, a, you know, connection to the footprint, our recruiting fr- footprint here in the Northeast. And, uh, you know, I thought I hit a home run with both Ola and Thad being retained, uh, already had a, a real feel for Temple University and the players that were currently on the, on the team, you know, so to lose uh, those guys is tough, you know, it's tough to go find new guys, you know, um, you know, but uh, I think we did a phenomenal job, you know, holding true to our philosophy, uh, still re- getting some guys who are very familiar with the Northeast, uh, obviously Jafar Williams, uh, a guy who, you know, played at Maryland and, and, and is coached at Virginia Tech and, and uh, originally from Philly, mm-hmm. you know, north, northeast of Philly. And uh, so, you know, to, to be able to land a, a quality coach that's got power five experience and has also played the position of which he's coaching is was a was a blessing. You know, I'll tell you what, it was it's hard to find good coaches, guys. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the that's the one thing. And then, you know, it seems as though, you know, when you do find those guys, everybody else is scouring for them as well. Everybody's trying to go and hire and get the same guy, but, uh, you know, very lucky. He had some other opportunities Jafar did and, uh, he chose temple and that's ultimately what it is, you know, here at temple, you gotta want to be here. Right. I mean, you gotta have a special place in your heart. His mom still lives here, you know, so it was really a really great fit for him as it is for us as well. And then, uh, Marvin Clesador, you know, guy who played at Lafayette, um, you know, although he's originally from, uh, Florida, you know, but again, you know, when you talk about the footprint then you talk about our secondary recruiting areas, right, which we got to go down into Florida and pluck a few of those those players from down there. Um, you know, he was an awesome fit. You know, um, I've heard so many great things about uh, his competence level as a DB coach. He's coached all over the back end. He's actually uh, had the whole back end before. Uh, he has some prior relationships to some guys on our staff now. And uh, they spoke highly of him in the interview. He just blow DJ Elliott and myself out the water. I mean, his his knowledge of the game, his energy that he brings to the table, and his want to be here at Temple. Again, you you you're looking for guys who want to be there, and there was no hesitation in his in his whole thought process and the words that he used within his interview that he wanted to be here at Temple. He wanted to take advantage of this opportunity. He was ready to take on this challenge. So. Uh, again, feel very, very blessed, somewhat lucky too, right? That those guys were available. Um, but most importantly, that they wanted to be here and they were absolutely built for uh, this philosophy and this this program. So extremely, extremely excited for those two guys. Stan, I wanted to go way back here to the, the beginning of your life. And you're from Cleveland. You grew up there. Do you remember like what your first, like or your earliest football memory was of the game what what got you into the game I mean there are all sorts of different types of like ways that people get into coaching and some people get into it later or earlier but do you remember what your first memory of the game was that that, that turned you on to football yeah I do you know I actually grew up on the on the east side of Cleveland and uh, grew across the street from a a park a recreation park and um, they they would have probably three or four uh, Pop Warner teams on that field practicing. So every day I would sit there and watch those guys practice. And uh, uh, we didn't have the money. I could not afford it. My mom couldn't afford uh, paying for me to join those teams. But just watching those guys out there every single day practicing, 
and they were my friends. I mean, I was just absolutely jealous that I couldn't be out there. So uh, while they were out there practicing, I would grab a football and just kind of move some furniture around and just just kind of play running back in the living room and, you know, let the couch <laughs> tackle me every now and again, not all the time, you know what I mean? You know, but uh, just kind of run around as they were practicing, just visualize me playing this game. And uh, at the time, Walter Payton was my favorite player. And, uh, you know, so there's times where I would even hurdle those couches, you know, <laughs> and do things like that. But that was my first um, memory of me falling in love with the game and, and then not having the opportunity to play it was uh was heartbreaking for me you know mm -hmm. but uh you know the one thing that was a lot less expensive was running track you know what i mean yeah. and and uh so i ran track in the off season and the and the, the, the good thing to that was you know a lot of those guys who were on those pot warner teams when the season was over they were running track so yeah. i still was able to engage with those guys you know but i didn't really get a chance to to play football until my sophomore year in high school. That was my first time putting on a helmet. And again, it was the same guys that I grew up with. They were far more advanced. Oh, take that back. Uh, my first time playing football was in junior high school. How about this? Mm -hmm. uh, Whitney Young Junior High School. And it was all flag football at that point. And uh, I joined the team late. Okay. And, and that was because I was really uh, insecure about myself. You know, those guys have been playing football for, for years at this point. And you know, so I joined the team as a punter. Okay. And uh, so I, I would just punt uh, for our, uh, our our flag football team. All right. And it wasn't really until I put a, a helmet on the first time my sophomore year. And a guy by the name of Al Valencici, uh, who was a head coach at John Marshall High School, uh, was just walking around the school recruiting. You know what I mean? And at the same time, a guy by the name of uh, uh, Coach Elkins was a wrestling coach walking around the high school recruiting. And they both kind of hit me on the same day and said, hey, you're either going to wrestle or you're going to play football. And uh, I, I didn't really like the whole concept of being rolled up and somebody all, all you know, bending me up all over the place on the <laughs> wrestling match. You know, so I figured, hey, you know, maybe I can take out some of this aggression, you know, on somebody else on the football field. Had no idea what I was doing, but it was the, the camaraderie, you know, the, 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 the feeling of a team you know, that I really hadn't felt before. You don't feel that, you know, in track and field. It's more of an individualized, you know, feeling, you know, but, uh, you know, Al Valencici pulled me aside and, you know, he, he showed me examples of, hey, this man's actions, good or bad, can have an effect on you. And if you approach this game the right way, you can have a positive effect on people other than yourself. And that sounded like family to me, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, so, hook and sinker, I bit that, you know, and I took that and was able to play and he immediately made me a running back and a cornerback. Actually enjoyed playing cornerback a, a lot more than running back. I didn't know how to quite read the offensive line or read defenses as a running back. So I was taking some hits, you know, that first my sophomore year that I wasn't quite feeling comfortable about, you know, but on, on uh, defense, I didn't have to think as much, you know what I mean? I just had to cover the guy that was in front of me. If I saw the ball, go hit the ball. And that's how simple and fun the game was at that time. So, I mean, it was just, again, being a part of a team, you know, and having that opportunity that Al Balancisi presented to me is what really still lives in me now. 
Stan, I, I read this piece about you in the, the Sports Illustrated archives, and there was a detail about you telling your mother that you wished you were born first in the family because you were ready to go to college when you were eight and you, and you wanted to be somebody. And that was when your oldest brother, Dale, was leaving to go to Kent State back in 1979. Right. What, right. what kind of impact did he have in your life with you? Well, you know, my brother. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he was just um, the fact that he was leaving home to go to do something that was independent of, mm -hmm. of, of you know, our upbringing was was something I was intrigued by. You know, I just felt that, you know, it was a vision for me that he was going to develop into a man. You know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in a single parent home, even though my father was very much so in my life. But, you know, growing up with my mom and watching her struggle raise three boys, you know, we were taught to be men pretty early in our lives, right? So the thought process of being able to go to college, you know, was the next step to go get a job and go into manhood was something that I've always wanted to do. And uh, my mom was the motivation, you know, I, I just wanted to take care of her, you know, watching her work three jobs and, you know, struggle, you know, really struggle uh, raising us. I, I just had this burning desire to just want to take care of her. And I thought that, the fastest way for me to do that was to go to college, you know? So the fact that my brother went to college before me, you know, kind of ticked me off a little bit, you, you know? I, I, I was ready to go be that man figure uh, in my mind before my brother was. So he was inspiring, you know? He, he was an inspiration to me because he was the first to go to college in the family and he made good with that opportunity. So I, I just couldn't wait for my turn. Stan, I kind of wanted to follow up on that. You touched on, um, you know, watch your mom try and raise you and your brothers and how that kind of affected you. I just wonder if you could kind of expand on what the effect that, you know, seeing her struggle and still, you know, do her best to raise you guys kind of, you know, how that affected your mindset and whatnot. Yeah, it just made me, it made me hungry. You know, it, it did, you know, it just made me want to do something to make her proud. Right. And uh, again, I just wanted to help, you know, and uh, you know, you get things planted in your heads, right, by your parents. Go be a doctor. Go be a lawyer. You, you know, those were the things that you you heard back in those days, right? And they just didn't sound fun, you know. Um, but the thought of, like, playing sports professionally or coaching sports professionally, this was not the conversation that my mom was having with us. And uh, But I knew I loved it. So when the opportunity came uh, for me to be able to go to college, uh, under the support of, uh, of a sport was something that just triggered nothing but, you know, positive thoughts for me. And, and, I, and, I, and again, I took that and ran with it. So, yeah, it, it was my mom and watching her and her work ethic, right? You know, and the things that she had to do and the things that she sacrificed, you know, again, going back to Al Balancisi, you know, he spoke of those same things. Like, you're going to have to have an unbelievable work ethic. You're going to have to make some sacrifice. And I'm like, well, I've seen my mom do that my entire life, you know, so it, it just made sense. And I love what I'm doing here, playing football. And it, it was a thing that provided the structure that I also needed. Right. It, it took time away and it made me become a better student. And, you know, and I just saw nothing but, but positives from that. So yeah, that's that's pretty much it with that. You know, it, it was very inspiring for me to have those opportunities and and be able to put all that together and see the big picture of how this can really uh, help me in the future. Yeah, I want to take you back to uh, Whitney Young Junior High School uh, in Cleveland, right? You're an alternate on the four by 100. 
you know, uh, relay team because there's a guy named Desmond Howard ahead oh, of you. Oh, your homework, man. As, <laughs> as wow. an anchor. Then a few years later, right, you're at an invitational track meet at Notre Dame. Uh, and Notre Dame running back Rocket Ishmael's there. Yeah. Um, and I read that that's when a coach nicknamed you the Bottle Rocket. Uh, <laughs> what do you remember from those times? And then do you remember the name of the coach that gave you that nickname? Yeah, it was Ken O'Keefe. You know, Ken O'Keefe was the same person who first told me that I was a football coach, you know, and he's unbelievable. Uh, took on the father figure role for me while I was at Allegheny College. He was a head coach at the time. You know, he and Joe Philbin were responsible for that, that whole movement, that thought process that they put in my head. Uh, I, I am forever grateful for those two people. But, you know, th those guys um, uh, really taught me so much. They gave me a, a grease board and gave me a marker and said, here's how you draw a circle. You know what I mean? And here's what that line means. You know, it was that it was that black and white. It had to be for me. You know, again, I was a late bloomer, uh, hadn't played a whole lot of ball just watched a lot of it, enjoyed watching it and enjoyed pretending and visualizing it. But when it became to the, it came down to the, you know, schematics of it all, I was so far behind, you know, but uh, yeah, you know, that, that, that bottle rocket name, I wasn't really uh, receiving that very well, you know, but uh, you know, what I learned from those guys, they were just constantly trying to instill confidence in me. You know, they saw something in me, you know, that I didn't see him myself so much, you know, they saw this kid coming out of this urban environment, you know, that, 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 that enjoyed uh, the game of football that gave it everything that I had every single day. And uh, they, they found a way to make that productive. And they found a way to teach me how to use it for good. And they, and they, and they showed me that I, I, I'm going to have an opportunity to inspire others with this skill set that they were trying to make me realize that I already had. And, uh, you know, I mean, that is just invaluable uh, lessons that you learn from people like that along the way that that make you who you are today, for sure. Uh, Stan, uh, I want to take you back when you were being recruited. This was before, obviously, all the rivals and the recruiting service services. I wonder if you could tell us about, you know, your recruiting story, because when you see someone who did what you did at the Division three level, you might think this guy is under recruiting or was probably too good to play, it was good enough to play up a, a level or two. Did you feel that way about yourself? You know, um, not until my sophomore year in college, when I realized that I was, you know, pretty good, right? You know, uh, became an All-American in both track and football. And um, and, and it was actually my, my track coach, uh, by a guy by the name of Ralph Rock White, uh, who was my track coach at Allegheny College, who, uh, prior to being at Allegheny was uh, the, the coach at SMU, the track coach at SMU, who fell under all those uh, violations. Now, he was a part of that, you know, um, who, who was the, uh, uh, Dickerson was the running back. Eric Dickerson, yeah. Eric Dickerson was the running back. I mean, all that craziness that was going on, they hit the death penalty. Well, he, he was a part of that, you know. Uh, so when he told me that, I was really a division one type of an athlete that just so happened to be at Allegheny College. You know, um, that was intriguing to me. You know, I respected that. You know, I hadn't been around any high level coaches, not to say nothing. You know, I was around high level coaches, but not coaches that have had division one experience per se. Right. He was the one person that had scholarship recruiting, uh, had been around those guys, had coach Eric Metcalf, 
in the long jump and, and things of that sort, right? So when he told me that I was a division one athlete, I'm like, wow, you know, and here I am playing division three football. Uh, i tell you what that did for me at one point, it, it, it had me really think like you, you're in the world of the portal nowadays, right? Guys sit there and realize that they may be better than where they are. And um, at that point, he almost planted the seed to have me transfer from Allegheny to give a bigger school an opportunity. You know, and thank God for my father, right? My father uh, pulled me aside and said, okay, if you leave Allegheny, uh, you make sure you find a home. And uh, I'm like, well, what do you mean that, you know, find a home? You know, I do have a home. He's like, no, you know, you committed yourself to Allegheny College and those coaches and they poured a lot of effort and, and, and a lot of love into you. If you leave them, you don't have a home in Ohio. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, right? So again, just the thought process is that's an old school thought process. Now, when you think about that, fast forward to the thought process of kids and what they have entering this portal, right? You know, they're looking for green grass. And I realized that my green grass was Allegheny College. I was where I was supposed to be, you know, regardless of the accolades I was receiving, I was around good people that genuinely cared about me. I was getting a great education. Right. And I had unbelievable support both on and off the football field. And uh, if it wasn't for Allegheny College, I don't know if I'll be sitting here doing this podcast with you today. You know, so, um, it, you know, it, it, it was really about the people. So now when you ask that question about, you know, recruiting services and all that stuff. Yeah, you, you really have to dig deep into uh, not necessarily what you see all the time as far as the skill set. You got to deep into dig deep into the mindset of the individual. Right. You know, what is it that what's the what's the end goal? All right. And, and then you have to really tap into are they willing to hear, you know, the reality of what this really is. Right. You know, everybody thinks they want to go to the NFL until they got to go do NFL things. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, you know, it's hard to make that league. It is hard. All right. So and then you look at the percentages. It's, it's not real for. 98% of the people who make it, I mean, who try to go in that league, only 2% make it, right? So, no, it's all about getting around people that, you know, genuinely have your best interests in mind that will keep it real with you. And it's about us as recruiters finding the perfect fit of guys that want to buy into the philosophy and, and the things that we're coaching and teaching here and developing the whole man here at Temple. And, um, and, and sometimes you got to look beyond the stars to find those things, right? To find those intangible things, those traits. You know, so, yeah, I, I never understood the whole star thing, you know, uh, you know, I first heard that, you know, coming to fruition uh, by a bunch of guys who never even played the game, you know, and you're going to give a guy a star, you know, are they really diving into the intangibles? Are they really diving in or are they just digging into the skill set? You know, because I've been around a bunch of extremely talented individuals that, you know, just can't get it right mentally and, and they end up in the same place as the person who played division three football at the end of the day. Right. You know, so yeah, you got to go way beyond the evaluation of what you see on tape and dig into the people. When did you, uh, you know, start to seriously think about coaching? Was it as simple as the story of some guys were, were like, it's like, okay, I'll coach once. I know I can't play anymore. Or does it go back farther than that for you? Think about coaching. You know, it was, again, it was Ken O'Keefe and Joe Philbin and, and, and so remember, we went back to that first conversation about the seed being planted to be a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, I was literally, you know, I was an English major, a political science, working on, on all that stuff, going to Washington, D.C., 
working in law firms in the summer, you know, doing legal, uh, paralegal type work, actually working on political campaigns and doing the grunt work. Now, I wasn't doing anything important for sure, you know, but just working on political campaigns and, and stuff like that. And God, it was, it was, it was boring, you know what I mean? But I just had this thought process that I was going to be able to provide and take care of my mom, you know, be a great husband, make money, right? Make enough money and all that crap. And, uh, but it was just not fun at all, you know? And uh, so in the midst of studying for the LSAT, I just started coaching. Ken O'Keefe and Joe Philbin kind of brainwashed me and said, hey, while you're studying for this deal, uh, go ahead and, and, and just help us coach the running backs. And talking about a tough situation now, I'm up here coaching guys, uh, you know, full time uh, guys that I actually were friends with and that I played with for the, for the last four years. You know, guys that I, that hung out at my house and we ate pizza and, and, and went to campus parties and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, they had to listen to me and do what I told them to do. And, and I had to hold them accountable, you know, uh, on a whole nother level. And that that woke me up you know, and it woke me up because they actually listened, you know, they actually did what I asked them to do. They trusted me, you know, uh, the relationship piece was, piece was there. It was strong and they, they allowed me to develop them. They allowed me to make mistakes in the process of the development, you know, and, you know, it was just a lot of that stuff that was going on, you know, that I, if I fast forward it today and sitting in this chair, you know, it's the same things that I apply uh, to this football team today. You know, just keeping it real with them, being honest with the mistakes that I make right there in front of them, like really trying to harness real relationships so they can believe and trust in what I am telling them has their best interest in mind. Same stuff, same stuff, you know, so that was that was planned into me, you know, uh, right after I graduate studying for the LSAT. And then it really became a reality uh, when the LSAT test came around and uh, I had to sit down and answer that first question and it took me 20 minutes to answer that first question, I'm like, okay, you know, this is absolutely not what I want to do, you know, and I answered the first question, got up, walked up out of there, and uh, it was time to be a coach. Stan, I wanted to take you back to the day that you were hired and announced, and obviously you had so many great coaching stops along the way. Once you were done that day over in the Leah Corps Center and talking to guys like us and doing the media thing, what, what was your, your next step? Do you remember what your first call was? Was it to a coach? Was it to a recruit? Because I'm like, I'm always fascinated when coaches like they, 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 they prepare for the interview, they get the job, they, they shake some hands. And then it's like, there's no time to relax. And you're, especially if it's happening in December, you're trying to re-recruit guys that are committed or signed. There's so much to do. What do you remember what you did next that day? Like what your first coach was, what your first call was or what your first task was after that? I think my first call went to my mom, you know, awesome. it was, uh, it was the, uh, the conversation of, Hey, you know, remember, <laughs> mm -hmm. remember the doctor lawyer conversations and, you know, and, and look at us now and, and, you know, and just the joy that she had this, you know, um, uh, just taking part in that whole experience to see her husband, act, uh, her husband, her son, excuse me, actually have an opportunity to lead a football team right and, and it was just a reflection of of, of uh, the next flurry of phone calls of the people who had the heaviest influences you know on my life and on this process you know um 
you know, they deserve the first call. And, uh, you know, it was just a, it was a very emotional time for me. You know, um, the appreciation that I have for Temple uh, didn't come by way of, a, you know, expressing over a phone call, just, just really just sitting down. And I can't remember where I was. Maybe I was outside of author's office, you know, kind of in the holding pattern of what the next thing they wanted me to do from a media standpoint and just sitting down and just looking out the window and just reflecting like, man, you know, uh, I, I really did this thing. And, and, and I, I vividly remember, you know, uh, sitting there with my wife as we're just kind of sitting in silence, just looking out the window, uh, being chauffeured in the car going somewhere. I can't even tell you where, but just looking outside and seeing Philadelphia. And, and, and you know, uh, again, my wife and I both started our careers here. Her first full-time job was here in Philadelphia. You know, my first scholarship opportunity to coach was right here in Philadelphia. You know, we got married while we were here in Philadelphia. I, I proposed to her, you know, right here in Philadelphia. And just being able to kind of reflect back on those memories, you know, it was just amazing for us to, 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 to come full circle, you know, with this opportunity. So a lot of reflection, you know, uh, a lot of um, emotional reflection, you know, a lot of conversation with the people who were a part of this process heavy. And, and, and then soon after that, it was just the feeling of being overwhelmed. I'm talking about with the task at hand, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? That became a reality in a hurry. And, and then just hearing the needs of, of, of what this, this program has to mean to the community here at Philadelphia. And, you know, hearing the overwhelming, you know, refreshingly so, hearing the overwhelming, uh, uh, things that the president, uh, Dr. Wingard, was experiencing, uh, that our first, a you know, that uh, Arthur Johnson had his first opportunity to be an AD and what he was experiencing, you know, we were all really overwhelmed, but excited, you know, and excited that we were somewhat aligned already. We all had the same goals. We had the same, you know, thrive in, in, in the same fire, you know, to get going with this with this tax that we had just thrown on our laps. And, and uh, you know, so overwhelming, excited, a mix of emotions, trying to put it all together. Uh, I can't say, honestly, even sitting here right now on this podcast that I have it all together with that type of feeling and emotions. I mean, they, they run through every day, you know, but um, boy, you know, you know, it's just uh, a wonderful opportunity that, that I, I will not take for granted. Stan, does some of that that feeling of being overwhelmed come from the fact that you know I, I've never experienced it? You know, you have. I don't think sometimes people take into account the sacrifices that you guys make. They'll say, "Well, he's a football coach; he gets paid well. He's coaching a game, but you move constantly. You're never in one place, and you yeah. have you have gone all over the place. Uh, and it's a lot. It's a sacrifice for you. It's a sacrifice for your wife and your two daughters." To and obviously you'll say, yeah, I got to come in here. I got to do a good job. But all the moving around, and when you finally get to that that head coaching spot, and you would talk the day that you were hired, the day you were announced that you, you applied for the job and you interviewed for it when Matt got it the first time around, and you and you you said you got some good advice from Bill Bradshaw, and then you finally get it after all that moving around. What is it like for like for a moment to kind of be overwhelmed like that and say? I'm a head coach now after I just moved X number of times in my life. Like, what is that process like when there's just constant change in your life with this career? Yeah, that's a great question, right? You know, um, 
one thing I can say is I married an independent woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, really, you know, she was making more money uh, at my time at Villanova than I was, you mm-hmm. know, working for IBM, eventually working for Lockheed Martin. She had her own thing going, computer engineer. Mm-hmm. You know, she was sharp. And at the same time, you know, training for the Olympics, she's a track athlete. So um, she, she herself wanted to try for an opportunity to train for the Olympics and things of that sort. So, you know, I married a girl who got it, right? Who understood what it means to set goals and really go for them, right? And we didn't stand in each other's way that way. You know, I would say the first two years here in Philadelphia, we were in a long distance relationship while she was still chasing her her track gene, her track dreams, you know, to make the Olympics. And, um, and then it just so happened to work out that she gets this job here at Philly and we're together. And we just made a promise to each other at that point that there will be no job, there will be no paycheck, you know, bigger than the love that we have for each other. You have to, you have to set that in stone. All right. If you're going to be a family man slash coach, right. You got to set something that's solid, you know, and I, I made a promise to her that I would never chase a job for money. And I would never chase a situation, you know, that would splinter the love that we have for each other. Okay. And, and that held true to today. And eventually those, those, my aspirations kind of took over and uh, while she's trying to be a computer engineer, you know, here in, in, in Philadelphia, and, I, and eventually I get an opportunity to go to Bowling Green where that opportunity wasn't available for her. And within six months, I'm in Green Bay, Wisconsin, where that opportunity still didn't exist for her. You know, she was willing to make the sacrifice to put her career aside to chase this dream that I had. And she found other opportunities, you know, in real estate and things that's this kind of, you know, and was happy with that. Right. And then a family starts coming around, you know, you know, my first daughter is born uh, the year after I leave uh, Green Bay Packers and go to Mississippi State. And, and then the family piece is in place, right? And, um, you know, and again, that conversation came up again. There is nothing, there is nothing that this profession is going to bring to us that is going to separate this family. If that means taking a, a, a lesser job, whatever a lesser job is perceptionally, then we were going to do that. We were just going to make every situation work for the benefit of us as a family, you know, and you got to keep that in the forefront if you're going to be a real family man in this business. And, uh, and again, I just call it luck, you know, because I've seen some coaches really fail with their families in this deal, you know, but for me, you know, as jobs change and, 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 and the scenery changes, the one thing that hadn't changed is my wife and my family, you know, they're there. You know, whether I'm hired or fired, they're there, you know, and I will not lose that per, per, perception. So, and while, yeah. we're on, while we're on the subject, I have to ask you, how did you, can you tell us how you met Monique and how you, and where you proposed to her? If you want to chose me, man, <laughs> you know how it is. No, <laughs> that's not how it was at all. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so uh, I'm a GA graduate assistant at Eastern Michigan at the time. And Eastern mm-hmm. Michigan is where she went to school. Okay. So you know, after leaving Allegheny, this opportunity to be a GA under Ron Cooper, all right, um, who's a head coach first, black head coach at Eastern Michigan, you know, and, uh, you know, he, he decides to hire me on at Eastern Michigan because we're in the same fraternity. This is a true story, mm-hmm. right? 
you know, he, he, you know, I go up for an interview, he sees my fraternity letters on my license plate and without an interview, he goes, you're hired. Now that's, that's honestly goodness true. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm quality control graduate assistant at the time they were the same thing. Right. And, um, you know, uh, I had just left a situation with Allegheny where I was a football coach slash track coach. Okay. And, uh, so to walk into the facility at Eastern Michigan, uh, to the football facility at Eastern Michigan, you have to walk through the indoor track facility. Okay. And, uh, so one day I see a girl that's working on her blocks by herself early in the morning as I'm getting ready to, to do some work. And I go help this, this individual out with her starting blocks. It's not Monique. It's not my wife, but it's my wife's best friend. Okay. And uh, I'm actually thinking, you know, that she may be digging me or filling me <laughs> out a little bit here. It was kind of awkward for me to be walking through the facility and her ask for my help, not knowing that I was actually a track coach and I actually can provide that service for, her, you know, so I would help her every now and again. And, uh, and then all of a sudden it got really weird, you know, um, uh, one day I'm helping her on the track and I see this one uh, uh, young lady who is running intervals with the boys uh, track team. And it is my wife, okay? But I, I am like just turned on by this girl. Like, who is that girl running with the guys? Like, mm -hmm. and she's doing it every day. I'm like, she must be some tough cookie. I mean, she must be a tough deal. You know, she trains with the boys, not the, not the girls, right? And I'm like, who is that? She goes, well, why do you want to know? It got real weird. <laughs> I'm like, well, I just, I mean, I don't know. I, it's just kind of, it's kind of interesting. I mean, to see her training with the guys. Well, next thing I know, she's hooking us up. She's connecting the dots and, you know, and hooking us up. And, and, um, you know, so she goes, you should try to talk to her. You should, you should try to introduce yourself to her. It's like, I don't know her. I'm a, and I'm a little intimidated because she's beautiful. Right. And uh, she goes, no, go talk to her. So at a basketball game, I'm throwing some names at you now. Uh, at the time, there was a guy by the name of Earl Boykins. You guys remember yes, Earl Boykins? I do. Yeah, a little short, short point guard that played a few, you know, years in the NBA at point guard. Yeah, he was he was a star player at Eastern mm -hmm. Michigan, so he would just pack the stadium at Eastern Michigan. I saw my wife Monique walking around. And I said, "Hey, you know, um, you know, your friend Tia." I uh, thought it may be a good idea for me to say hello to you, introduce myself to you. She goes, "Well, hi, how are you?" <laughs> kind of, you know, and just made me say more stuff. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. I said, well, maybe you can take me, you know, around Detroit. You know, I knew that's where she was from. Just show me around Detroit. She says, sure. You know, so, yeah, we hook up and, you know, she shows me around Detroit and it kind of gets stale after about a month. She disappears. And I don't hear for, from her for probably about, you know, two months. Right. Mm -hmm. And then my birthday comes around in March and, and, uh, you know, I'm in Ann Arbor, you know, celebrating with a couple of friends. And there she is sitting at a bar with another guy. Ooh. I said, hey, what happened? I thought everything was going pretty good, you know. And, you know, um, she goes, well, I, I knew when I met you that I was going to like you. And I knew that I was going to met when I when I met you that you can be the one. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> some heavy mm -hmm. conversation here. Right. Mm -hmm. But she was 100 percent right. You know, um, we were the ones for each other. And, uh, and we kind of had the instinct that that could possibly happen even in the early days that we saw each other. And she tried to run away from it. You know, I tracked her down and caught her a couple months later and, and sealed the deal. 
you know, and uh, 27 years later, man, we're, we're, we're still together. So. That's, that's incredible. Stan, Sam Cohn just joined our, our, he's part of my staff. He's just doing the interview here. You'll hear from him a little bit later. It like, comes at just the right time. All the, the, the deep details of, of, of Stan Drayton's life. Wait, how did you, how did you, before I turn things back over to Dante, how did you propose to her? Yeah. So I wasn't real creative with that. Right. But, um, you know, it's one of those new year eves, you know, deals, you know, I actually bought the ring, uh, probably the cheapest diamond ring. You can buy in the diamond districts right downtown here, (laughs) you know, uh, scrambling up, scrapping up pennies to get this thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so we, we go to a new year's Eve party down here in, uh, in, in Philly and, uh, right at midnight, I dropped on the knee and proposed to her right on the dance floor. You know, that's good. Say, yeah, That's a good yeah. story. Yeah, she didn't say yes right away. I think she was kind of caught off guard by it, and I think she was scared. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, "Well, is this a yes?" She goes, "It's absolutely a yes." And uh, but here's the deal, right? You know, I talk uh, an independent woman. You know, mm-hmm. we were engaged for four years prior to getting married. Mm-hmm. You know, we just wanted to make sure it was right. You know, our lifestyles were changing you know, all that stuff was going on. She was still chasing her career. So we were engaged for four years prior to us really, you know, tying a knot. That's awesome. Stan, I don't mean to interrupt. This has movie script, right? This movie script writes itself. Oh, man. I'll be a terrible actor, man. You got to go get Denzel <laughs> for this, for this deal. If they, if, they make, if they make a movie about how you met your wife and, and the proposal story and first meeting at the track, who, who plays you in the movie? Man, you know, Did they get a young Michael B. Jordan to come out and, and play you at the track, helping someone else like who, who yeah, plays kind of old movie? school. I'm kind of old school, man. You got to go ahead and, 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 you know, get Denzel Washington to get that gray out of his hair. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe do some computer, you know, adjustment to, to some CGI looks. to have Denzel. Yeah, play. You know That's I, mean? awesome. I don't know too many of the young guys, but no, it was it was it was a, a special connection. It really was. Stan, this is this has been a lot of fun and we appreciate your time. I thought I would end this real quick with a few like fun rapid fire questions for you about stuff off the field. Give us uh, your favorite song. Oh, wow. He loves me by Jill Scott. That's you guys good, know who Jill Scott is? Yes, we do. Fed, good choice. there. good Philadelphia choice. Jill Scott. Yeah. Well, and it's real, you know, again, one of those stories for the movie, right? Jill Scott made her first album. All right. In 2000, the year that my wife and I got married and we got married in St. Thomas on a, on a, on a cruise boat and we're struggling to find uh, a non-traditional wedding song and that was the song that my wife walked down to he loves me by Joseph. Oh, that's awesome how about uh your favorite food if you had like you, if somebody said to you this is going to be your last meal what's your what would you eat man ribs <laughs> barbecue ribs and i and i say that and i'm mm-hmm. laughing because i'm a vegan you know <laughs> and, I, and i hadn't had ribs in years you know what i mean but i still still love ribs man but i can't eat them what would happen if, if you tried to like sneak some and your wife found out, would you get in trouble? You know, I'm not going to sneak them because of what it does to the body. It, there we go. It will have me curled over, man. So I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't sneak a rib right now. How about, uh, do you remember what your first concert was? Yeah, it was the run DMC. Uh, what was the name of that concert? Uh, run DMC, LL Cool J. I can't remember. Gosh, wow. Oh. Yeah, but it was Run DMC, LL Cool J, MC Light, uh, that concert. It was their first hip-hop tour, and uh, that was my first concert there. It was, it was big time. 
That's a crazy lineup. Yeah, it is a great lineup. Yeah. One last question. I, I, we like asking people about this because you get so many football questions. Is there something that people wouldn't know about you or something that that you don't get the chance to talk about because you're always talking football or something that you would want people to know that they don't know about you? Wow. That I don't want people to know is the, is the incredible <laughs> thing. Um, no, um, you know, I, I'm an avid biker, all right? Mm -hmm. I, I love riding bikes. I, I'm a road bike guy. I mean, I'm talking the, the helmet, the tights, you know, all of that stuff. The, 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 the tights got to have the, the butt pad on and the whole deal, you know? <laughs> so, you know, that, that's funny. Uh, it's funny to people who, when they see me in that moment, how serious I am when I'm riding that bike. But I'll ride, you know, 50 to 100 miles on a bike, you know, and, and uh, people don't know that about me. Not that I care that people know that about me, but, mm -hmm. you know, but uh, one thing I will say that, that I do unselfishly is that I, I do love people and, and uh, I love helping people and uh, I love diving into to tough situations, you know, when there's cameras not watching and, and, and helping uh, a situation get better than what it, what it, than what it is currently. So, I mean, I do love that. Dan, this was this was great. Thanks again so much for your time, and you'll you'll have some some plenty of biking trails to explore and in, in, yeah. in place. So it's a good good city for that. But yeah, thanks again so much for your time. We really appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Go out. So some some great stuff there from Stan Drayton. Like like we said, uh, that's just part of the conversation that we had with Stan. Again, if you are subscribed to Al Scoop or you plan on subscribing to Al Scoop in the future, you'll be hearing. Um, some other pieces of the conversation of some more detailed stuff about the team itself. But there you, you heard him, you know, just telling us some great anecdotes about what got him into coaching and how important his mother was to him, uh, his brother. Um, now, you know, a little bit more about Jafar Williams and Marvin Clastor and why, why Stan uh, hired them guys, your reaction from, from the conversation, even if it's just a couple of snippets about stuff that uh, people can, can listen to once, uh, once they subscribe or once they're on the site? I can take it first. I think the, the one thing that really stood out to me, and this is more speaking uh, in whole about our conversation. Um, one thing that stood out in all in the, the few times we've heard from him and talked to him and from other people have said about him, he's just a, like a really genuine, genuine guy. Um, and he says a lot of the right things. Of course, you know, we, I think we had mentioned like somewhere in the conversation that as in, you don't get everything about the team until spring ball, you know, they haven't played a single game Understand Stan Drayton, but he says a lot of the right things. And I kept thinking towards the end of our conversation, you, you could, you could play a drinking game and take a shot every time he comes back to his philosophy and the importance of, I mean, you'd be hammered, but he he's very grounded in his philosophy and the importance of building and reestablishing and creating culture at temple. Uh, the part that you just heard during the podcast about his upbringing and kind of how he got into, into football, I think is, is, was really the foundation for that. Uh, but for, for staying Drayton, it sounds like he is so, so, so deeply rooted in philosophically how he wants to build temple football, which is if, you know, as if, if you're a temple football fan, if you're a fan of temple and you want to see this, see them succeed, that's all you can ask for right now. Yeah, I mean, just echoing everything that Sam said, um, if you know, if you're like me and you really like to dig into like the football stuff, uh, like John said, like subscribe and you can listen to the whole thing. We, you know, kind of a lot of that football stuff is going to be there. And that's the part that I enjoy. But like just 
hearing from Stan, I mean, he's like Sam said, I think like genuine is probably the best word to use to describe him. Um, he says all the right things and coaches obviously have coaches speak and we hear that a lot, but you know, I, this is going to sound, you know, really almost dumb, but like, I really believe Stan Drayton when he says this stuff, like, I don't think it's him trying to be a proper coach. Like, I think it's really him. Uh, and I think that it's important to make that distinction. And, and I think that he really, you know, he talks a lot about, um, you know, his upbringing and, and the part that you guys just heard and how that kind of pushed him to coaching. And then, you know, in, in the later part, right, he talks about like the holistic development of student athletes and that was kind of the theme of the back half and you can listen to that if you subscribe to um the site and i think that you know he carries that and he just seems like a really genuine guy really cares about these kids and about you know what they're going to do after football and i think that that's you know obviously it's not the sexy you know offensive scheme defensive scheme talk but it matters it matters for these the the this program and the kids that are on the team right now and i, I think it's all good stuff like sam said if you're a temple fan i think you know, you, this is a genuine head coach. This is a guy who really, really cares about developing young men. And I, I think that's a part that gets lost in the, in the shuffle of day-to-day football talk. And that seems to be on the forefront of his mind. And I think he at least seems to get how you need to recruit and how you should recruit a temple. And obviously he's been able uh, to recruit a very high level player. You know, when Caden asked him about, you know, his recruiting story, um, and being at Allegheny College and then having the career that he had there, some people might say, you know, man, maybe this guy was was under recruited. And then he told that great story about how, you know, you're looking for greener grass and my grass was right at, at Allegheny College and, and, you know, talked about why he stayed there. But then he turned that into that conversation about stars and how I never really truly understood that. And I mean, again, so many coaches can say uh, we, this is a developmental program, whether we're here, there, or anywhere, whether we're at Alabama or LSU, but at Temple, you do really need to embrace that. Like we said, I mean, the, they've gotten a, a small handful of four-star players over the years and none of them have really played out or panned out. A couple of them didn't even remain on the roster. And the one that did Karamo Diabate was a rotational defensive line player. And it's really been, you know, if you're looking at stars, the two-star guys and the three-star guys. So it does seem that, that Stan's vision aligns with, you know, what works, what has worked for Temple uh, in the past. And the rapid fire stuff was fun. You know, him talking about being an avid biker and how his last, his last meal, you know, he'd love to have ribs, but he can't because he's a vegan. He would be doubled over in pain, which reminded me, Sam, of how you talk about what would happen to you if you had too much gluten in your diet. And uh, if, if Stan and I hung out, I would eat gluten, he would eat ribs and we would just have a terrible time together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hope that's not actually what happened. I hope instead and I hang out, we choose a different activity, maybe go for a bike ride together or something other than eating food that we can't yeah. eat. But that's eh, fun to think about, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> but again, um, yeah, big thank you to Stan for carving out as much time as he did uh, for us. And again, you'll uh, be able to hear uh, the other pieces of that interview at alscoop.com. And again, if you're not subscribed already, I would strongly suggest it. Again, a lot of great insight into, you know, just other parts of the program about single digit stuff, uh, his philosophy on how they're going to handle hitting and hitting, hitting and tackling in practice. I combined the two words um, and just, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of good stuff uh, that you'll hear in the other segments about Everett Withers, his chief of staff who really 
ended up having, um, you know, a, a strong influence in, in his hires and Stan, uh, gave us a lot of good insight there, but again, a lot of good stuff that you won't, uh, hear on the pod beyond the pod. I would definitely, definitely recommend it. A lot of cool stuff there. Uh, we did promise you some basketball content. Uh, again, we're recording this before temple takes on SMU. Sam, do we know, uh, I mean, again, once people listen to this, it's going to be outdated information. Do we, do we, are Jeremiah and Damien Dunn still game time decisions heading into tonight? Game time decisions, but Jeremiah has not practiced and Dame tried to practice, but couldn't do anything in full. So my, again, people are going to know this is a moot point because people are going to know this, but my assumption is that neither of them are probably, or they're probably not going to play. Aaron said he's hopeful for Dame a little bit more just because the later games, so maybe he'll feel a little bit better later in the day, uh, but he tried to practice and he was feeling pretty sore. So it, it doesn't, didn't make, he didn't make it sound like they were both uh, likely, likely to play, but listed as game time decisions. Yeah. So again, as we're, as we're sitting here now, um, you know, Temple was sitting at 13 and nine overall six and five in the American after that 92, 83 overtime loss at Tulane on Saturday, you know, of course they've been without Caleb battle since, since early December, he's out with a season ending injury. Um, no Jeremiah Williams after the shoulder injury at, uh, at USF and, and uh, no Damian Dunn. Zach Hicks had 21 in that game. Quincy Adam McCoy had a career high 15, um, Zach, of course, kind of got, was late in getting over to Jalen Forbes who tied it with a three with about two seconds left in overtime. And then Forbes scored nine more points of his 25. And that's ultimately what, you know, what sunk him there. So again, not recognizing Forbes there cost him and would have been a nice win for him. Again, it's Tulane, you know, it's not a great team, but would have been a heck of a win nonetheless on the road. Um, Guys, just some general impressions from that game before we head into the the three mailbag questions here. I mean, again, I I don't know. Aaron's not big on moral victories, and you certainly don't want to talk about Tulane as a yeah in the, as a moral victory or anywhere in that conversation. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, if you're playing Quincy Adam McCoy that many minutes and you're without really your three leading scores. Um, there was a lot to like in that game, obviously the defensive laps at the, at the end, but what, what did you think about it? First thing that comes to mind, I mean, again, there are no moral victories, especially against Tulane. Um, but from what you saw in that game, I was shocked. Mm-hmm. They were the offensively. I mean, defensively, they were solid at times um, They you know, they still had Julia white on the floor. They, you know, Ty Strickland is still can be a really solid defender for them off the bench. Um, offensively. I thought they were going to be an absolute train wreck for 40 minutes. I thought yeah. it was going to be atrocious because of how much, how, how much they lean on Jeremiah Williams to run the show. High Miller played 39 minutes. It granted overtime helped his minutes a little bit there, but that's the most he's ever played. Uh, that was his first start. Uh, SMU could be a second is likely going to be a second start. Um, he's really come along. And I, I asked Aaron about this the other day. He said that he's uh, he's not afraid of the moment. He, that that's really where he's he's become a lot more poised. He's he's grown with his ability to be able to run run a team, be able to run that position, and it's it seems like he's a little bit ahead of where they thought he might be. He's essentially Jeremiah Williams last year. Right now, he's really kind of getting thrown in the fire. They tried to ease him in a lot of this season. Now he's just getting thrown into the fire as their starting point guard. Uh, not quite as drastic as it was for Jeremiah starting on on day one, but. He's really getting thrown to the fire and he's really running the show a lot now. Obviously, him and Ty split some of that responsibility, but offensively, I thought they were some pretty bad turnovers. It felt like the same pass every time. Uh, they just kept turning the ball over. But offensively, they were they were much better. Again, not great, but much better than I thought they would be. 
Yeah, I mean, I think just to add, and I, I know Temple fans probably don't want to hear this, but I think, you know, we'll be sitting down and having these conversations next year. And I think you'll hear Aaron say, like, you know, obviously it's not the way we wanted it to happen, but it was good that some of these guys got this experience and it allowed them to grow. You know, you assume that, you know, the leading scorers come back and everyone's healthy next year. I mean, having a, you know, a Heisier Miller with a lot of experience, you know, capable of coming off the bench and giving you good minutes as a backup point is huge. You know, maybe Zach works his way into the starting lineup, or maybe he's another guy off the bench. I mean, I, again, I think it's good experience. I think if you are looking at it from the bright side, I agree with Sam. I was very surprised that they scored that many points, just putting it simply, I was not expecting them to score 80 plus points in regulation, um, you know, given who they are rolling out there. So again, I know it's not what Temple fans want to hear, especially, you know, the way that this season was trending. It looked like this team was really starting to find their groove and Damian and Jeremiah were kind of really stepping into their roles. And, you know, I'm not saying they can't get it back. Those guys come back and continue to perform well, but you know, we might be sitting here having this conversation next year and go, you know what? Not the way that, that anyone wanted it to happen, but maybe it was good they got all those minutes. Maybe it was good they got all that experience. They can be really, you know, big-time contributors off the bench, just making them stronger. Again, that's just the optimistic view of it. Zach Hicks almost pulled a Brendan Berry uh, in overtime and, and towards is... the end. He started knocking down a couple of shots and mm. in conference play – excuse me, conference tournament Brendan Berry fashion. So, Sam, what was your – oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you got say, it. What was, your, what was your view of what happened – when they, you know, in the on the the three, um, that forced overtime when they lost Forbes and Zach was out there. What was your view of 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 what went down there? I know we're kind of really kind of like microscopically breaking down a, a play that's like two games old now, but I know it was mm. it was a conversation piece over the weekend. What was your view of what happened there? Yeah, so we had talked to, talked about this a little bit in our group chat. Uh, the way I saw it and the way that Aaron explained it post game, Aaron had said that. There was no conversation of fouling went down three with you know, 10 seconds left, which is up for debate. If you're, you know, just any someone that likes basketball, there are people on both sides of the aisle, of whether they think that's the right move doesn't matter. His, his philosophy was to go out there with 10 seconds. He was confident in the way they were playing defense. Um, just switch on everything. So Tulane brings the ball down and I guess they brought a fake screen and then the flare onto a three. So like they brought the screener knowing that temple has been switching pretty much the entire game with the hope that if they bring the guy, if they, if they bring the screener, they're going to switch, they're going to get caught up when he flares and maybe they'll, it's actually exactly what happened is they'll, they'll either run into each other or there'll be some kind of miscommunication. So they bring a fake screen Forbes pops out to the three point line. Um, and then because Zach and, I think it was Ty Strickland are both under the impression that if they use the screen, we're going to switch. There was a miscommunication to what was happening. Zach is half a step slow. Parlay that with the fact that he's not the best lateral defender. Uh, he's got long arms, which helped him a little, get a little bit closer, but he, he's not the best at moving laterally uh, in a situation like that. And he was half a step behind. So uh, to me, that was a very minor miscommunication that put him half a step behind. It was an, it was a nice play call by Tulane and it, it worked out well for them, but that, that's what I saw is when, when they bring a fake screen, they flare the guy out to the three-point line that Ty and, and Zach had a, a half second of miscommunication, and he was just a step slow in recovering through that. So we do have three basketball-related mailbag questions to, to close things out here. Uh, first two come from the message board from our basketball message board at alscoop.com. Third one comes from Twitter here. So the first one, the screen name is Berkshire Al. Question is, assuming Damian Dunn and Jeremiah Williams get healthy for the American Athletic Conference Tournament, what do you think? What do you all think about their prospects for the tournament? 
very different than what their prospects would be if they don't have Damian Dunn and Jeremiah Williams. I think it's a totally different conversation. So but I, they think are it's a very, I think it's a very big assumption that they're both going to be healthy. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll say plainly, like if, if they're healthy, I think anything is possible with this team. They've shown a lot of grittiness. Um, they've shown that they can close out games. Uh, I think they're still, uh, as of like a week or so ago, they were, they had the most wins in the conference by five points or fewer. They've been the best team in the conference at closing out games, uh, closing out close games uh, in, in clutch situations. They've since lost like the last three of those. Uh, so without Damian Dunn and Jeremiah Williams, you're losing huge pieces of your offense, both a scorer, a facilitator, and a secondary scorer in, in those two guys. So if we're being honest without them, I could see them losing on day one, depending on their matchup. Uh, you know, maybe they fall out of the first round by section of the top five of the conference and they lose on day one. If they don't have their temples done crazier things, they could get out of whatever, but without them, that's kind of where I see them with them. They probably with the end of their schedule, depending on how much these two guys play, they're kind of on the fringe of getting that first round by, um, I think if they're healthy, they, they, there's, there's at least the possibility that they could, they could do something interesting and, and make a run. Kyle, Dante. I, I mean, I agree with Sam. I, I think that obviously if they are healthy, I think this team maybe can, can win a couple of games, but if they're not, I, I find it hard to believe that they're going to get out of that day one scenario. I don't, if those guys don't play the rest of the year. They probably don't finish in the top five, given their schedule. They play some of the best teams in the American to close it out. So um, I would assuming that they will be playing on day one. And if those guys aren't healthy, I probably, and I am a betting man, I probably would not take that bet. So um, if they're back though, who knows? Uh, they've gritted out some tough games this year. They might be able to do it again in the tournament, um, obviously. But again, how rusty are that? Or, or Jeremiah and Damian, have they played recently? Um, basketball rust can take a little bit to knock off, kind of takes you a, bit, a minute to get back to the speed of the game. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, if we're, if we're looking at the, the question as is, assuming Dunn and Williams get healthy, I mean, okay, let's say Damian Dunn and Jeremiah Williams get healthy. Yeah, could they, could they get to the conference championship game, depending on how things are bracketed out? Yeah, why not? But I think what would ultimately stop them, even with the healthy Jeremiah Williams and healthy Damian Dunn, is they still just don't have anybody that they can throw the ball to in the post, if, if people aren't hitting shots, I realized that you could maybe, maybe that guy is Nick Jordan, whether you post him up in the paint, whether you post him up kind of near the top of the key and he turns and, and shoots there, you'd have to look to him there. But um, I think that that would, that would be the thing for me where they fall a little short against, against somebody like Houston, but I don't know, strange things have happened. Yeah. John, to your point, just to, to get back to like answering the actual question, because we don't want to stray too far from it. If they're both healthy, if the two of them had never gotten hurt in these final six games, they're playing the four of those games are against the top four teams in the conference, all nine win teams. They probably split uh, their last six. Maybe they're around a 16 win team. Maybe they squeak out the five seed. Maybe they get a first round by in the conference tournament. Maybe they get a favorable matchup. And I think there's a legitimate chance that they could they could be there day two, day three, whatever. Mm -hmm. They could make a legitimate run. But without them, I, I think it's it's very hard to make the argument because their schedule is tough. If they can't close out these uh, these last couple of games and close out some wins, they're not going to get a great seed. They're going to have a really tough first round matchup, and it's hard it's hard to imagine a, a Temple team without those two guys making a, any kind of run, especially with a tough first round matchup. Mm -hmm. uh, two more questions here. 
this one from the message board from the screen name Tiger Owl. Given that Tulane is about as young as Temple, will these two teams be the top American athletic conference teams in the future? A Ron Hunter versus Aaron McKee rivalry would be fun. Sure. If SMU and Houston and Cincinnati all yeah. just major yeah. collapses. Yeah. If, Tulane, yeah. if Tulane's two bandage guards don't just decide to leave and go to a real program. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't exactly say that, that Ron Hunter has been, look, everybody's using the portal. And, you know, kudos to them for scraping together a few more wins here, but about as young as Temple, you know, like Kyle said, you know, they brought in a couple of transfers and good for them, but who's to say that they're going to stick around? I think that if I'm a 20 point a game guy, like, like the name who the two lane guards name is blank for me, the guys who score 20 points a game, the transfer from LSU, I'm probably just declaring. Like, even if I'm not going to the NBA, the G League is a more viable option than it's ever been. I'm probably not sticking around New Orleans for another year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, final question here to close things out is from uh, Twitter. Uh, the Twitter handle is uh, at Temple Fan Al. Um, at full strength, can this team be the best team in the conference next year? Can they? Why not? Will they? Probably not. I, I think. I think we've had this conversation so much throughout the season that this team at full strength, playing their best basketball, is one of the best teams in the conference. They're not at the level Houston is. They're probably not even really at the level SMU is at, but I think you could argue they're better than Cincinnati and they're better. They're, you know, they're better than Tulane. They're better than Wichita state. So the, a team that was at one point, the third best team in the conference and gave SMU a, a good fight. I, I very much think they're, they're, they're at full strength of their best basketball. They're a top three team in the conference, but the, the, the difference between Houston to SMU to temple is, is a little bit larger than I think people might, might want to think, or, you know, might want. Anybody that is sitting here on February 16th and is telling you they have any idea what Temple's roster looks like next year is being disingenuous okay. with you. Yeah. I mean, also I mean, it, it's 2022 where even when you're projecting, okay, you think one or two guys are going to leave, that could easily become three or four. Not that I've heard literally anything, but if I'm high seer Miller, maybe it's possible that I go, okay, do I still want to sit behind these guys for another year or two years? Like that could, that could apply to a lot of different people. If I'm Zach Hicks, do I still want to come off the bench for another year? Do I see a starting spot coming out? If I'm a big that's currently playing on Butler, do I want to transfer into Temple? Like, there's so many ifs that, like, yeah, it's possible. It's also possible that they have a nexus they don't they don't expect, and then all of a sudden, we're projecting roles for guys that might be playing for St. Bonaventure next year. Like, well, that's a tricky thing because again, I, I think that again they they are they are what they are right now. Again, heading into tonight's game. They are 13 and nine, six and five in the league. We don't want to overrepresent what they are, but Aaron and his staff have done a good job of retaining the guys that they wanted to retain with all due respect to Dre Perry, who's out for the year, JP Mormon, guys like that. They were kind of fine to see them walk. They kept the guys that they wanted to keep. Now it's another year of, like Kyle said, making sure that you can continue to recruit and keep the guys that you want to keep. You know, it would be, Devastating for them to see a Zach Hicks go. Really, anybody on the roster, short of you know maybe in Arashma Parks or someone like that. But um, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to to be said, as Kyle said, about how things are going to shake out with the roster. If things stay relatively the same again, unless Emmanuel Akpomo makes a huge leap, you, you gotta. For me to say they're going to be the best team in the league, they they have to go get. They have to go get a competent big, and as we've talked about before, it's not that easy anymore. You know, you don't just get maybe the top big at a low major program because even those guys are are getting big big time offers. So, um, 
I like the question. It's, it's a good one. Um, I think they can be one of the top teams in the league, as Sam said, but the best one, I need to see a, a big and maybe another shooter off the bench. And like, you know, a handful of these guys taking a step forward. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, when, um, when does all the teams leave for the big 12? That is a very when, fair question. Houston's does, still going to be there. Yeah. When is Houston and Cincinnati and all that, when they leave, I, I will be willing to indulge this conversation mm-hmm. like legitimately. But until then, I, I think Temple has a couple pegs to, to climb on the ladder still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. Good stuff, Sam. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that'll do it for this week. A uh, big thank you to Stan Drayton for joining us. And thank you to all of you for continuing to listen to The Scoop and for subscribing. Have a great rest of the week. And we will talk to you guys next week. Bye.